This message is brought to you by House on the Rock Fellowship. We are a church that serves and cares for the Miami Valley region in Ohio. Before you continue, make sure to access the notes from our download section of our message page and have your Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. Good morning. To our guests, hello. Those watching online, uh, my name is Paul. I'm a pastor and a teacher here. It means a lot that you've gathered with us this morning. Let me read something to you, please. This is from a woman named Nora Croce's book, Everyone Here Spoke Sign Language. In the 1980s, she was researching hereditary deafness on Martha's Vineyard. In the 17th century, the original European settlers were all from a region in Kent, England, called the Veld where there was a high incidence of hereditary deafness. Because of their geographical isolation and intermarriage, the percentage of deaf people increased across the whole island. By the 19th century, one out of 25 people in the town of Chilmark was deaf. In another small settlement, almost a quarter of the people couldn't hear at all. In most societies... Physically handicapped people are forced to adapt to the life patterns of the non-handicapped. But that's not what happened on the vineyard. One day, Croce writes, interviewing an older Islander resident, she asked him what the hearing people thought of deaf people. We didn't think anything about them. They were just like everyone else. Croce responded that it must have been necessary for everyone to write things down on paper in order to communicate with them. The man responded in surprise, no. You see, everyone here spoke sign language. The interviewer asked if he meant that the deaf people's family. No, he said, everyone in town spoke sign language. I used to speak it. My mother did. Everybody. Another interviewee said, those people weren't handicapped. They were just deaf. One other remembered, they, the deaf, were like anybody else. I wouldn't be overly kind because they would be sensitive to that. I would treat them the way I treated anybody. Indeed, what had happened was that an entire community had disadvantaged itself in mass for the sake of a minority. Instead of making the non-hearing minority learn to read lips, the whole hearing majority learned signing. All the hearing became bilingual. So deaf people were able to enter into full social participation as a result of doing justice, disadvantaging themselves. The majority experienced God's peace. It included people in Kilmark, why everybody would go um, and included people that in the social fabric when other places would have fallen through it, they experienced justice. Why, they quote, when they had socials or anything, everybody would go. They, the deaf, enjoyed it just as much as anybody did. And they used to have fun. We all did, they wrote. They were all part of the crowd. They were accepted. Fishermen and farmers and everything else. Sometimes, if there were more deaf people than hearing people, everyone would speak sign language just to be polite, you know. Deafness 
as a handicap, largely disappeared. Perhaps the most interesting aspect of Croce's research was the revelation of how hearing people had their own communication abilities enhanced. They found many uses for signing besides communication with the deaf. Children signed to one another during sermons in church or behind the teacher's back at school. Neighbors could sign to one another over distances in a field or through a spyglass, a telescope. One woman remembers how her father would be able to stand on a windy cliff and sign his intentions to the fishermen below. Another remembers how sick people could, who could not speak were able to sign to make their needs known. In other words, the disadvantages that the hearing vineyards assumed the effort and trouble to learn another language turned out to be for their benefit after all. Their new abilities made life easier, more productive. They changed their culture in order to include an otherwise disadvantaged minority. But in the process, they made themselves and their society richer. Because of how they chose to use their hands, society was made better. Justice. I share that story with you because I challenge you to that this morning. Maybe not to you learn American Sign Language. I know some of you do that but to maybe turn the tide of justice by having open hands with the things that God has put in your care. We've talked a lot over the last couple months about justice, what it is, its biblical foundation, the theology of justice, how Jesus came for justice. God loves justice. We're called to the work of justice to steward the flourishing of another person. That's justice. Out of all of those things, let me bring back three terms that I want us to hold on to this morning. One is steward. What does it mean to steward? A steward doesn't own anything. A steward is entrusted by the master to act on behalf of the master in the master's best interests. We are called to be stewards. We own nothing. The penny in our pocket, the breath in our lungs, none of it is ours. You don't own that. It was given to you. You're a steward of it. It means to use it according to the master's best interests. Let's hold on to the idea of what it means to be a steward. Let's also hold on to what we said about creation, that God is creator. And we, humanity, are his ambassadors, his artwork, his adored children. He is the owner and the keeper of all of it. Let's also remember grace. Grace is what fuels the engine of justice. When I struggle 
with participating and doing justice, speaking against injustice, ministering to the vulnerable in my midst, whoever and wherever they've come from, I need to hold on to grace that he who was rich became poor, that I would become rich. We're going to gather at the table in a little bit. How beautiful that he says, as often as we would remember, may remember the gift of justice and his grace. That are we not paupers and orphans welcomed to the table of a king to eat? Last week, we talked about restoring the voice, the prophetic voice of justice, to speak against injustice where we see it. But today, let's talk about hands, restoring open hands. I know there are lots of things as we talk about being a steward that are at our disposal to steward. There is our time. You have time that you are to spend well. It's a gift from God. You have talents, abilities, capacities, skills that you're encouraged to use. But more than that, this morning, I would like to talk about your treasure. Oh, great. Another entitled white pastor talking about my money. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty much. But it's not your money. It's not mine. And what I believe is if we can learn to calibrate and understand and steward the treasure, the financial treasure that God has given to us, everything else will probably follow in tow. If you are obedient in how you handle your money, you're probably well on the path to being obedient in how you handle and steward your talents and your time. To start us off, why don't we turn to a book, uh, 1 John. It's in the back of your New Testament. 1 John chapter 3. I just want to take us to a few passages. These are things that you know and you already know. And then towards the latter half of the message, I'm going to bring a friend up um, who's really, really good at this and talking about this and teaching on this. And she's going to guide us a little bit farther. 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. This is a general letter that was sent out to general followers of Jesus Christ. Talking about love and how love is expressed. This is what he says in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 17. First John. Make sure it's first John. So it's a one, then a John, not the gospel of John. Okay, multiple books that have John in the title. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let me read that first verse again. If anyone has the world's goods, monies, foods, shelters, clothes, the touchables, the tangibles, the goods of the world. If you have these things and you see a brother in need, meaning lacking, a brother who is vulnerable, a brother who needs what you have, 
and you close your heart to him. You say no. How does God's love abide in him? How can you say that God's love abides in you? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This isn't negating what I said last week about having a voice against injustice. He's saying not just talking, but doing too. Not just speaking against, not just being a voice. But let's make sure we're also doers of justice. Our hands open because open hands protect us from closed hearts. Maybe that's something to write down. Open hands, generous hands, protect us from closed hearts. There's something about what we do on the outside that speaks to what's going on on the inside. And the one can help shape and heal the other. Some of you might know a few weeks ago, I had a little bit of a medical emergency and had to be taken to the hospital and was rushed into the surgical room and had surgery and simple, lame, not a big deal, uh, not a problem at all. Uh, but it was after the fact that I started to have some medical complications, specifically my blood pressure. Apparently blood pressure is a big deal. <laughs> like, like, no matter what, you go to urgent care, let's check your blood pressure. They even have machines just for checking your blood pressure. Apparently blood pressure talks about what's going on on the inside. And mine kept bottoming out low, like bad low. They kept running tests. They kept trying to figure out what is it that there were things that were going on on the outside that were speaking to my body's capacity on the inside. And as they ministered and cared for the one, it provided for the other. There's someone in the Old Testament who was really good at this who modeled what it meant to have an open hand. In fact, God recommends him to the entire divine council of the heavenly courtroom. God brags about this person in front of all the spirits in his presence. He says, have you thought of, have you seen my man Job? Now we know that what unfolds is a whole series of very difficult events for Job. He loses his family. He loses his businesses. He loses his health almost completely. But God says of Job, here is a blameless man, an upright man. And when Job and God have a conversation towards the end of the book, and Job comes before God, kind of making the defense, the, the presentation of, hey, I don't understand, God. Why have I lost this and I lost this and I lost this? Why did you do these things to me? I mean, this is me. This is what I've given my life to. 
in the defense that Job gives as he remembers the good old days when he was respected and why he was respected. I want you to see how justice was right in the middle of all of Job's priorities. This is Job chapter 29, verses 12 through 17. Job 29, 12 through 17. You can look at it with me, write the verses down and, and look at them in a little bit on your own. But Job said, as he would go through town, as people would see him, they recognized him, not for the house he kept, not for the truck he drove, not for his hobbies, but because he was clothed Injustice. Listen to this. This is Job chapter 29, verses 12 through 17. He says, I delivered the poor who cried for help, the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Job said, you want to know how people recognize me, what I was known for? I was known for being a person of justice. And he lists some of the examples. I took care of poor people. I was a father to the fatherless. I cared for them. I gave of myself. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. When people would pass away, their dying words, they would speak blessings on me because of how I would minister to them when they were alive. The widow in the community had no reason to fear because I took care of them. I was eyes to the blind. How are you eyes to the blind? You kind of need to be with them, don't you? I was feet for the lame. Someone who couldn't run to the store, I ran to the store for them. Someone who needed something cleaned up around the house, I cleaned it up for them. They needed changed, I changed them. I was their feet. I became their body when their body was broken. I was a father to the needy. Look, look at this one. I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. He says, it wasn't just enough that I cared justice for those who I knew. I, I looked for those in the community who just needed cared for. Strangers didn't matter to me. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous. That means he wasn't just an agent of relief and restoration. He was an agent of reform in his community. I looked for systems of oppression. I looked for systems of injustice and I broke them. I stopped them so that those who are victims to would be released and set free. Job was known for justice and righteousness. A man of wealth and position 
who used it to care for others. Open hands protect against closed hearts. In the New Testament, a similar comment in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. How are we doing today? Everybody okay? You guys are quiet. You guys, are, is everything okay? You good? You're the one talking about money, preacher. Just want to make sure you're all right. I know it's a busy weekend. 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, the Apostle Paul writing to an apprentice team member, Timothy, who goes and helps establish the churches that Paul plants. Okay, so Paul would go into a community, start a church, minister there for a few years, and he would move on. He would send team workers back to establish that church to help it grow. And he writes these letters of encouragement, whether it's to Timothy or to Titus. He had a lot, big team that Paul worked with. And in the P.S. to this letter, before he closes it and mails it off, uh, Paul has this to say to Timothy. He's talking to the church. Remember, when you're talking to the church, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, proud, snooty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There's something about open hands that protect me from false hope. Open hands of generosity protect me from a false hope. Not putting hope in treasure, in wealth, in my retirement, in my bank account. So he says, verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. By giving, by being generous, I'm calibrating my heart to recognize that I'm a steward. It's not mine to keep. It's mine to give. But he goes on to say, they're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Is he talking about your retirement plan? Is he talking about your 401k? Is he talking about that little nest egg that you buried under the mattress? How did he know about that? We have cameras in all of our members' houses. What, is he, what future is he talking about? There is something that pays forward in the future hope of all believers. There is something in the divine economy of God that sends some type of treasure forward, a return on your investment based on how you steward today. 
that open hands provides future returns. I don't think it's crowns. I don't think it's gold. I think it's people. I'm just, you know, I'm spitballing. I'm spitballing. But what is it that Paul would think, that Jesus would think, that God would think is truly life, is truly treasure? Is it not that which God says is his precious artwork, his precious ambassadors, his adorned children? That I'm generous and I will see the return on that investment. But you say, Paul, I'm not rich. I'm not rich. I get to the end of the month and it's not there. This is for those who are rich. I'm not rich. I think all of us fall into one of four categories this morning. Okay? As we speak to the rich part. There are those here who are truly, biblically generous with their financial resources. And it amazes me to watch you over the years sacrifice of yourself, give of yourself above and beyond. You are truly generous givers. It amazes me. When so many churches closed through the pandemic, when so many churches suffered and suffer to make ends meet, you have always gone above and beyond. Now there's some practices I feel that are at play on why we get to experience God's grace. But I will never forget the day after the pandemic when our landlord walked over and he said of all of his rental properties and his rental homes that he oversees, we're the only one that never missed a payment. Isn't that amazing? Praise to God. Praise to God. And you are of the generous. Thank you for doing that. There are those here who are truly, truly under-resourced. There's not enough coming in to meet the ends, to care for those, to care, meet the needs of yourself and those that are under your watch. You are truly under-resourced. And we walk alongside of you and encourage you. And there are some of you who fall into that category. I understand that. But by the grace of God, go I. There's also some of you who are just stingy, miserly, scroogey, cold people. And apart from God's grace sending you ghosts in the middle of the night to waken your frozen soul, you will never release a penny to the kingdom work of God. I know that. I don't lose sleep over you. Okay? But also, there's some of you. There are some of you. And I have been there and I understand this. You're just a bad steward of God's resources. We weren't taught how to steward. We weren't taught how to budget. We weren't taught how to prioritize. 
And you are amazed to find out, as some of you have sat down with our finance team or with Rose or in budget counseling, find out, holy cow, where did all this money come from? That there's plenty coming in. You just get to the end of the month and you just threw it all in the garbage, that's all. I did not. You did too. And people are crying out for justice and people are crying out for aid and your heart is genuinely grieved and you want to have an open hand, but they're crying out, help me, help me, and you're too busy throwing the Benjamins away. I don't have any money to help you. I don't have any money to help you. I don't have any money to help you. I've got to pay for Netflix. I've got to pay for Starbucks. And so let me challenge you this morning. I'm going to ask Rose to come up. Rose, round or square? Okay, Rose wants round. That's the shape of the stool. And I will sit on the square one because I'm the square one. Rose is our operations lead. And maybe you're not familiar, if you're new to House on the Rock from a structural perspective, uh, I have ministry leads that help me oversee the church. Um, Rose, as an operations lead, helps me oversee uh, the physical, tangible assets and resources of the church, the building, policies, procedures, but also she helps lead the finance team, uh, watches the budget and those money pieces, and she's incredibly gifted and capable in those areas. So very thankful um, for what she is able to do and how she's able to do it. Um, leading the finance team, um, providing budget counseling. And if you don't know, I'm just, I just ask Rose to share a little bit how our church is already structured to do justice work. So when you give, when the baskets go by in a little bit, okay, in what way do we steward that to meet uh, and care for the vulnerable in-house and the vulnerable outside? Sound good? Sound good? All right. Could you, all right, how do we do justice here? Okay, so when we establish our budget at the, be, at the end of the year for the following year, we establish our budget based on 90%. Sorry. Um, 10% isn't accounted for because that 10% are Easter and our Christmas offerings. We don't count that money. That money comes in. It goes immediately out um, to our international or regional partners. Um, the rest of the budget is 90%, but we also take 10% of that, and that is for our, um, our HOPE team and our benevolence. So two line items. Um, capture 10% of the budget. Um, our HOPE team, those are for missions and outreach outside of the church. And our benevolence is for our people inside of the church for us to be able to care. So just cookies in the bottom shelf because I do words. I don't do numbers. So from the get-go, we take 10% right off the top and give it away. It's in the shape of our Easter offering and our Christmas offering. None of it comes in. None of it is for operations. None of it is for ministries. Uh, it'll be designated. Often the Hope team will like, hey, we're going to give this away to this ministry. We're going to give this away to these global partners. But it's gone. Okay. So that leaves. So we plan a year's budget on 90%. Okay. Of that, another 10% 
is set aside for hope and benevolence. Benevolence is justice inside the church. Someone comes to say, hey, Pastor Paul, um, we can't make ends meet, Pastor Paul. Um, we need gas money, Pastor Paul. Rent in Piqua is redonkulous. Pastor Paul, uh, we don't have any food, okay? Benevolence team meets that. If someone from the outside is asking for help, and it happens on a regular basis, okay? The hope team vets those things. The hope team um, cares for needs outside the church family that come our way, okay? What are some examples of like benevolence needs that we've bumped into? Um, we, so car repair, that's, um, that's one. We, assistance with food, um, assistance with paying rent. Um, we've also had where um, people have made a really poor financial decision. Um, no one has ever done that, right? <laughs> None of us make any bad financial choices, right? And, and they just need some grace to get their feet back underneath them to, to be able to um, get back onto the right path. Well, there's like payday loans. Payday loans. Uh, is predatory lending is, is a huge, huge injustice that I would love to cancel altogether um, so that people don't see that as a financial means to help ends meet. Now, there is something unique about those line items in our budget. Budget for hope and benevolence. What's unique about them? Um, those are the only two line items in our budget that increase with the tithes that we receive. So if we receive more than what our budget is. Which happens every year. Which happens every year. Um, God always surprises us. Amazing. Um, those two line items increase as the giving because it's 10% of what we receive is what goes out. So they give more money. Do I get paid more? No. If they give more money, does the worship ministry go up? No. Does the family ministry go up? No. No, there's, there's two designated line items that as you are more generous, we get to be more generous in the areas of benevolence, hope, justice, giving in our community. Okay? So when the baskets go by, that's a significant part of what you're participating in corporately. Now, what I'm very thankful for, and I don't have anything to do with it because I'm a words guy is our ministry in, in budget counseling, financial counseling, coming alongside of individual families. What, in your years of walking alongside of us, what are some common enemies that you've bumped into and when people come to you and say, hey, I've got a mess, help me? Um, typically, it's a priority problem um, because we allow our money to steward us and we don't steward our money. Um, Ouch, talk nicely. <laughs> She's harsh. <laughs> Um, but it's simple things like we, have, we live paycheck to paycheck. Well, you live paycheck to paycheck because you don't look at it from a month perspective of what's coming in and what's going out. We also don't pay attention to um, going broke, going bankrupt $20 at a time. What that means is stopping over at the gas station and buying, um, buying a soda, buying a throwaway pop. You know, anytime you stop at Starbucks and just you're throwing five, ten dollars away at a time. Um, the other part of that is, is hey, I went to the store today and there was this really great sale on the shirt. Well, you didn't go to the store for that shirt, but you bought the shirt, so you just wasted your money. Cole's cash. Terrible. <laughs> 
What, you talk about those simple mistakes. I heard you, you were talking about this last week and it really grabbed a hold of my attention. The purchasing of wants. There's something that I want. Not necessarily something I need, but how can I maybe better process the wants of life? Um, so something that I have wrestled with the last few years, if there's something that I really want, I ask myself the question, how does it advance the kingdom of God? If what I want can't help advance the kingdom of God, then do I really need it? It's a want. It's not a need. And I'm just a steward. Yep. It's not mine. None of it's mine. None of it's mine. And so we need to start asking ourselves, not how much are we giving? Okay? Oh, Pastor Paul just wants me to up my giving. We need to ask ourselves, how much, how much are we choosing to keep? If all of it is entrusted to me, the measure isn't what I'm giving. The measure before God and others is how much am I deciding to keep for myself? Can you think of any other just simple tips, things that people could start doing now to make themselves more available for doing justice work? Well, the first thing would be is print out your bank statement and kind of view where your money's going. That would be number one. Um, number two would be to establish a budget and trust because God's math, God's math never, never makes sense. Anyone ever experienced that? God just shows up in miraculous ways. Some of you have taken our tithe challenge. <laughs> three month money back guarantee you tithe for three months okay obediently faithfully for three months Linda's owning it man it works right you are proof you are proof tithe for three months faithfully obediently if after three months God hasn't shown up we'll give you your money back dead serious right yep yeah no. <laughs> yeah, is it because God shows up? Yeah. God's math just. Yeah, we put it on paper because like I try to take a pen and be like, yeah, this is it. I can't afford it. Like, I can't afford it. Like, here I am, you're tired. We're happy. Swimming in the pool. <laughs> God is faithful. God is good. Rose, anything else? Just, I know, I mean, she, she said, well, I'll put some notes together, put some note cards together. I'm like, no, Rose, your spirit just overflows with these things. Okay, as she teaches it, as she helps others, as she walks alongside like a, like a, a, a genuine financial life coach. Just things I wish, I want people to know this as we think about justice, as we think about finances. Giving's worth it um, to others, you know, seeing, seeing a need around us, um, it, it's worth it. Um, no, no, that's it, that's it. If you have questions uh, for Rose, or you're feeling that this is a space I would love to be able to, but I, there's something wrong. Oh, if you get to the end of the month and it's not there, tear off that connection card, put down your name, write down the word budget. Rose will reach out to you. The finance team will reach out to you and they'd love to come alongside of you and help you through that process of looking at your finances. So this is what she looks like. This is what she does. Um, she is one of the people in the church that says no to me all the time. Can I have this? No. Like, ah, I'm so thankful for people that are blessed in this area of finances. Thank you, Rose, so much. Would you thank her, please?
As we think about giving corporately, let's, let's focus this into a couple areas of justice. So I've showed you we are structured financially to do justice, okay? It's a part of what we do. It's a big part of what we do. And I would love to continue to see that increase more and more and more. I would really love for us to dream about and think about ways that we could confront predatory lending in our area, um, um, you know, paycheck cashing and 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 money today schemes it's we have walked alongside of people through those decisions love to see if there's a way that we can't um, like like job said break the fangs of those financial institutions that would be a tremendous work of justice but corporately let's talk about tithing just for a couple minutes pastor paul you're wrong the New Testament does not command us to give a tithe. Right. I know. You know what it does do? It commands us to be generous. And that's a whole lot different than 10%. But if you were to come to me, if you come to Rose and the team, hey, I, uh, I'm struggling to right my ship. I'm struggling with an open heart and open hands. Okay, we will counsel you to begin with 10%. Okay, can you imagine what the American church could do if it tithed? I actually have the numbers. Okay, how much do you think is on the table if the American church tithed? Write down a number on your notes. Just dream a little bit. How many zeros? What's the number? What do you think? Write something down. How much money is on the table for kingdom work if the American church tithed 10% of its income? Here's some things to think about. Currently, Christians give on average 2.5% of their income. 2.5%. During the Great Depression we gave 3.3%. Isn't that interesting? Currently, between 10, only between 10 and 25% of churches give a full tithe, a 10% of their money. Only 3 to 5% of Americans regularly give to church work. So as we think about the numbers and the number of people based on the projected number of churchgoers in the United States, the size of the American church, which is around 65.4 million people, okay, in America. The median income, they say, is around $61,000. That means if the American church tithed, it's $400 billion. If you don't know what that number looks like, write down the number 400 and then put nine zeros after it. Do it. Yeah, that number, Lance. It's that number. At our current giving rate of 2.5% of our income, that's $100 billion. There's a lot of money still on the table that could be given towards kingdom work. 
Here's some of the ways that that money could be given. If we gave at capacity, meaning not generously, just 10%, okay? $1.8 billion would add a church campus and prison ministry in 1,800 prisons in America. That's just 1.8 billion. We still got, you know, a lot more to go. $15 billion would provide housing for every homeless person in America. $5.6 billion would eliminate the financial burden of adopting from foster care at $14,000 a year. $1 billion would train 20,000 new pastors. Let's think globally. $25 billion, remember we're working with $400 billion. $25 billion in five years would relieve global hunger, starvation, and provide clean water and remove preventable diseases. $12 billion would eliminate illiteracy in five years. $15 billion would solve the world's water and sanitation issues. The world's water and sanitation issues. $10.8 billion would free 27 million people from slavery. If the American church would just tithe. Justice. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you're not someone who practices regular financial generosity within the church. I challenge you to do that. This is a church. If you're wondering, this is a church that takes justice seriously. That's corporately. But let me challenge you with an individual idea, something that you can do on a weekly basis, boots on the ground. And we thank you for giving us the opportunity with the Hope Team, uh, the Benevolent Stewardship Team to engage and help others. But we know that there's some separation there. You don't see that. You don't hear about that. You don't find about that. And you probably shouldn't and don't want to. Okay? Okay? For the sake of privacy and protection. But let's say you shop at Walmart, you shop at Meijer, you shop at Kroger, whatever your go-to box store is. Let me challenge you this week and make this a regular habit. As you go through the line to get your groceries, at the same time, what if you got a $20 or a $25 gift card for that store? I don't have $20. I don't have $25. Get what you can, but I bet you you can get more than you thought. But get a card for that store so that you have that in your purse, so that you have that in your wallet. So as you go through the store, as you go up and down the lane and the aisle, you can do what John said. As you see one in need, as the Spirit prompts, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to wrestle with it. You can pull it out. Jesus says that you're supposed to have this. I love you. Have a great day. Have a great day. And then the next time you go shopping, get another card. 
And as you go shopping this time, you get another card and give it away. You go into the week anticipating that the God who loves justice and the Jesus who came for justice will bring across the path of the follower of Christ someone in need of flourishing and care. But it's my money. A pastor a long time ago. Uh, his name was Robert Murray McShane. About 160 years ago, wrote along those thoughts. He had this to say, Now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine. How many of you want to be fruitful? Fruitful in your life. Absolutely, yep. You pray to be made over in the image of Christ. How many of you want to look like Christ? If so, he said, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Objection one, my money is my own. Answer, well, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Well, then where should we be? Objection two, well, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said, they're wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I'll give to the good angels amongst us. But no, he left the 99. He came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection three. Well, the poor may abuse it. Answer. Christ might have said the same. Yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more. Yet he gave his own blood. Oh, dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile, to the poor, the thankless, the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It's not your money I want. It's your happiness. Remember his own words. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Let's come before the table this morning. What a beautiful expression of justice, of restoring justice of the king, inviting the pauper, the poor to the table and said, here, have a meal. Where do you find your heart this morning? we quick to receive? Should we not also be quick to give? Isn't it time that we started using the world's goods for the world's good? Thank you for sharing your time with us, and we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today, and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can. Again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly, to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. And that's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, 
builds their life on Jesus' instructions. God bless.